You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. You know, I keep forgetting to start these things with introducing ourselves, Siobhan, so I'm going to cool it on the warm intro again, warm open, and just say, hi, I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor of Nori. I can't even say my own title. I'm one of the co-founders at Nori. We're a carbon removal marketplace. Uh, with me is Siobhan Montoya Lavender, who is a co-founder at Thanks a Ton and also works on memes, podcasting, and other things with Nori. Hi, Shiv. Hey, Hello. Hey, and Jeremy Epstein, head of growth at Open Force Protocol, coming to you live from Portugal. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you for making it work, even with the jet lag and everything. <laughs> like yeah. we were saying earlier, this will be my my last act of the day, and then I'm I'm turning in. I was saying we get them we get them nice and groggy, so it is like a happy hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, are you you got some like vino verde and bacalao over there? Or what have you got handy? All, all that pastiche, whatever <laughs> they eat here, I'm 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 gonna eat it all for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, we haven't done too many blockchain shows recently, and uh, or just refi in general, uh, regenerative finance. If you're not hip to that term, and uh, why not? I feel like we should. And uh, I feel like like before even introducing blockchain stuff, even covering covering carbon removal itself is quite difficult. So introducing something additional like this is maybe maybe tough for us or tough for others to cover in depth. Or maybe that shake of your head says, can you really cover one without the other? I don't know. Why don't you uh, tell us what you're working on, though? Sure. So Open Forest Protocol is using a crypto tech stack to solve what we see to be the the key bottleneck in delivering enough high-quality nature-based solutions to the voluntary market. And that bottleneck is MRV. The current process to measure, report, and verify claims of what's happening on the ground. Of course, with with CDR, right, you're you're trying to create a, a, a commodity. And that commodity is not like something that you actually deliver to the end customer. You're not making, you're not growing corn to bring corn to the end customer to make cornflakes. Uh, you're actually trying to deliver proof that that commodity has been stored somewhere, right? And to do that, you need this this MRV piece, measurement, reporting, and verification. It's different for whatever methodology of, for for carbon removal you're you're undertaking. In nature-based solutions, there's number of bottlenecks and just a number of difficulties in sort of scaling and creating a a trusted proof of impact uh, that this ton of carbon or ultimately this uh, unit of biodiversity, if if we're going to go there, these things have actually happened and we are creating the the, the digital asset record uh, to represent that thing so that people can then transact with that record and, and trust it. So you need that that connection between the the credit, which is the asset record, which I am referring to, and the actual thing in in the real the real world. And to deliver between those two things, that's that's the MRV. That's the piece where we are bringing a uh, a Web three tech stack to make it decentralized, accessible to all, and very very data backed to create that that trust or to go one step further, that trustlessness, as we say in, in the Web3 world. I just want to make one small observation, which is the idea of a unit of biodiversity is very funny. And I imagine it would make some people just howl. But 
Okay. <laughs> I will, I will see the floor there. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know what that it. unit is. It's a lizard or several monkeys or something, but uh, we're 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 aware that biodiversity is like that's the hot topic at, at the upcoming COP. I mean, that everyone's sort of talking about it. I have yet to wrap my arms around exactly how do you measure a how do you measure a biodiversity, right? Like, what is that thing? Let's break it down a little bit because I feel like when you say like the Web3 tech component, I feel like there's so much talk about Web3 going on and Web3 as it pertains to the climate specifically. And even though I've delved into a lot of this, I don't know that we're doing a good job as a community communicating this accurately to like the average person. Like, so like the average person who's like, okay, I've heard of like Bitcoin. Like, what do you, what do you tell them? Like, how do you pitch this? Like, what is the virtue? What is the value add of putting carbon into this like web free platform? Yeah, that is oftentimes the jumping off point is, well, is this Bitcoin? Okay. I think we're both so traumatized. Shit. Like, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm, I hesitate to I'm do shit. Like, like, oh, you should have given me a trigger warning for this one. <laughs> um, okay. Good luck, Jeremy. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bitcoin is a, a, a digital currency. And one of the things that makes it super cool and has all this uptake and people love it is the fact that it is based on the blockchain, which essentially is a is a digital ledger. It's just a, a more perfect system of accounting, if you will. If you really want to break it down, that's how I think about it. It's like, okay, this is a way to do accounting on a global distributed level so that we don't lose records. We don't have questions about what is where, which asset is where, and particularly when you're trying to transfer digital value multiple times through multiple jurisdictions all over the place. It is nice to have a um, system that that you feel like you can trust because the data can't be destroyed. Uh, it, it can't go anywhere. And, and it, it always gets added to this blockchain. Now, that's like a, probably a terrible oversimplification of, of what that is. And how do you... We want the um, oversimplifications. We want to make great. this. This is blockchain for dummies, people. Okay. So there's that. You have a great system of accounting. Now, now let's like turn the page and we're going to go look at look at the voluntary carbon market and look at some of the headlines that have oh, all right. Let's let's talk about the, the John Oliver piece, right? Like yeah. there's there's a uh, timely and I think pretty pretty on topic critique of, of some of the issues going on in, in, in the system. Now, he has a few different critiques, I, I believe, but one of them being there's double counting. There are companies that buy these credits, claim them as an offset, and then go ahead and, and resell them. And, and we know that companies do this. We've had CEOs or former CEOs come forward and say, this kind of monkey business has happened, and, and likely it is still happening, right? Uh, anytime you have an opaque system or process, with sort of self-interest or the ability for people to self-enrich to some extent. This is my, my cynical worldview on humanity, but I think this holds up. There will be monkey business. If given the opportunity, people will act in a self-interested way. I'm sure there's some famous economist who, who agrees with me. And so that has happened in, in the voluntary carbon market because it, it's, it's fragmented. You can buy a credit from here, from there, hold it, sell it, claim that you've uh, offset with it, sort of whatever you want to do. I speak with investors regularly. And the one I, last one I spoke to at the end of our call, they said, well, now all this has to go through some sort of regulatory body or, or a government, right? No, no, really anybody can 
create these things and it, it is it is voluntary and I, I will not say wild west uh it's been stricken from my vocabulary but you're just um, hearing that that apply here also <laughs> i want to redefine defecting from the prisoner's dilemma is now known as monkey business just a heads up yeah yeah so yeah so you you take this sort of perfect system of accounting and you apply it to the voluntary carbon market and i think that's a lot of what has been done in refive with projects that have been able to spin up get off the ground and do things around credits on a blockchain so far. And many of those, most of those projects, pretty much all of them to date, perhaps Nori being one exception, have been bridging tokens. have so been taking tokens that were created through the machinery of a, of a legacy system, through sort of legacy actors such as Vera, such as Gold Standard, putting them on a blockchain and accounting for them in that way with that blockchain-based accounting system so that there isn't a question of who owns the credit, who bought it, who sold it, at what price, was it retired, was it not retired? Those questions do get solved when you bridge carbon onto a blockchain. And I I think that that's fantastic. And to me, that is solving sort of the second half of the problem. It doesn't fix the supply problem, but it fixes what do you do when the supply exists and we no one has a clue where it's going or who owns it. And you know, if we misaccount carbon, the result is terrible. The result is we end up essentially with more emissions in the air rather than less. So you've got to fix the accounting thing first. I think the blockchain is a great place to do that. That's kind of how a lot of refi projects to date have tackled the, the game. We're doing something different. So I like to sort of create that separation. And I can tell you more about sort of how we solve a problem that starts earlier in that process, but I'll I'll stop there for a moment. I like the way you split that out, especially with regard to supply. Me at my least charitable at Nori will see projects within the refi space and I'll think like, like, cool, you have found a new uh, demand pipeline and that's great, but also supplies the bottleneck in carbon removal and much of the supply not in carbon removal is not that good. And if you're funding it, Aren't you just going to get more low quality projects if you're willing to buy anything without regard to the quality? Yes. And I'm not sure. We actually, I just passed my five-year anniversary since Nori was founded. That was exciting for the founders at Nori. That was fun. Almost all that time has been on MRV methodology, just getting soil right. It's still very difficult. We still have like faced lots of conceptual challenges and trade-offs. Blockchain applications and token economics almost feels relatively trivial in comparison to just dealing with the carbon. And I'm not sure that that has fully sunk into a lot of the refi movement just yet, but you're much closer to it than I am. So I very well could be mistaken on that, but that's my superficial take on it. Let's just jump in before we even talk about that. Let's define refi for our audience, for our listeners. Again, this is this is for the refi and blockchain for dummies. So either mm-hmm. one of you jump out with this one. If I was just like, hey, define refi in a sentence, what would you say? You have to start with DeFi to even get to refi. <laughs> right, Jeremy. Well, it, it it stands for regenerative finance. It has nothing to do with your mortgage, uh, so we'll we'll get that out of the way. To me, refi is a system that creates value with positive externalities. In other words, something good happens with the climate, with the biosphere, and value is created. And so you are sort of aligning incentives, you're aligning value and positive outcomes. Okay. I like that. Ross, you want to take a stab? 
I should make that DeFi connection, which came came together a couple years ago, decentralized finance, but basically a way of well, one application of it, one might say, is loaning one's crypto uh, without some central intermediary. Like you're loaning it to an algorithm and people are borrowing it and using it and you're being paid interest. And there are many other applications of staking tokens or other things that don't require a bank that you're putting, leaving money in a bank in the same kind of way. So I feel like refi is uh, kind of a, a little bit of like a using the convention of the, the naming convention and kind of being like, hey, we're even cooler. This is this other thing. There are also DeFi applications within refi. So yeah. that's like a heard you Feeling like refi. Back the onion here. Yeah, there's definitely that component of 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 access. I think Ross, that you're you're getting at. Uh, that's important. Uh, that 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 people can participate in things that perhaps they they couldn't otherwise because there isn't a, a central regulatory authority standing between them and creating a, a carbon credit and getting that accredited and putting it on blockchain or of or many other things that they could be doing. There are a lot of hurdles right now, as we know, and we've talked about this before, I think, to getting credits verified on various platforms. And on the one hand, it's like, yes, we want to really lean into verification and robust measurements and authenticity. But, you know, I talk to project developers that are like, well, I can't afford to get my project on the bold standard. Like that's, you know, thousands of dollars that I don't have right now. You know, these are, these are small projects they're trying to get off the ground. So I think there needs to be a space somewhere in the ecosystem for small projects to have some sort of verification that maybe isn't yet at the super expensive industry standard level. Sort of the, the legacy system has been very much one for like the one percenters of of carbon projects, like those that are big enough, connected enough, and well-heeled enough to afford to get through that system, leaving the rest of the projects kind of out in the cold um, with without access to MRV, which leads to accreditation, which ultimately is how you get a, a results-based, credit-based financing to scale and rinse, lather, repeat the process. So like, there's an internal debate that's been going on at Nori for a super long time about DAOs and to what degree things can be, can and should be decentralized. Because on the one hand, you think, I've seen communities like, like Open Air Collect is, is a great example. I think that community is so strong that I think they could probably write some methodologies that can and should be incorporated into some carbon removal marketplaces. But, and there are also communities that work despite the fact that you don't it's like hard to imagine that they even would like Linux. The fact that Linux works and much of the world runs on Linux based uh, operating systems is magical and hurts my brain to even think about. And I wonder, like we have full timers devoted to thinking about the difficulties of MRV and soil and carbon markets and the dynamics that all have to play out to, to actually work. I have a hard time thinking someone with less stake in it, who's sort of a part-time hobbyist could solve it in a way that I could not uh, even if there were hundreds or thousands of people all decentralized and collaborating in, in a sort of like GitHub repository for it. Am I, am I mistaken? Should I trust that decentralized process more and trust myself less? Or is there a part of me that is correct? I, I wish I had the answers for you. Those are, those are tough questions. Yeah, I don't know that I, I don't know that I would know the answer to that either. When I think of decentralized, um, I certainly think of, you know, peer-to-peer -peer accountability, which I think of in a positive way. But then I also think race to the bottom sometimes, you know, like as you were talking about, let's bring back the monkey business, you know, like the mm -hmm. monkey business race to the mm -hmm. bottom. So it's like, where's that sweet spot between like having the authenticity and, you know, the backing of some of these major verifiers and then having it 
on this peer-to-peer decentralization that is more accessible, is easy to validate, is easy to corroborate and check. Like, where is the where is the sweet spot? And are you trying to find that at Open Forest Protocol? Are you trying to find that at Nori? Like, how do how do we get there? Yeah, I I think on the decentralization and I mean you you can't make the rapid fire decisions and build quickly and all the things you need to do in a startup environment with a decentralized, you know, DAO-based governance process, right? So that's where sort of this idea of progressive decentralization comes in, where you you do start off centralized. And we, you know, OFP is is definitely on on this trajectory, right? And, and the goal being ultimately that myself, the co-founders, all of us could go away. And the system lives on because it has sort of it's grown its wings and it's 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 flown out. It's fully decentralized, but it takes a long time to get there. And I think maybe what you're getting at is 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 a little bit of like that in that interim period, you do have you still have those same problems of, of centralization, which is I, I think somewhat counteracted by just transparency. And I think that's probably the best thing that we can do is just try to be as transparent as possible at these early stages until the point where sort of decentralized and transparent mechanisms take over. Because you can't start from there. You have to, that has to be more of an endpoint. Yeah, I'd love to read. I've been reading the um, Balaji Srinivasan's Network State recently, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into this. And I bet there's, if I looked at the bibliography, I could probably find a good thing to read about this, but which kinds of problems are best suited to a sort of decentralized open source ethos and which ones do not are not well served by that model? Because I feel like sometimes in, in the crypto space and interact, there's an ideological pre-commitment to dowing things or making this a community-based kind of participatory model. And I mean, like Bitcoin from the start, right, is sort of like anti-centralization, anti-Federal Reserve, anti-fiat centralized money. And so it's sort of, it's core to crypto, it's core to crypto's culture, but I don't want to do it just because that's the default within the space. I want to make sure it's a wise use of it. I've definitely been in groups before, like I was in an Occupy group in college and that was pretty decentralized and participatory. And I think... Uh, the failure of my leadership and a failure of many people who participate. It didn't work. It didn't work. Dang it. So I don't know. I think I've been in, definitely been in groups where I'm like, okay, a strong leader here and less of a consensus model might be nice. Anyways, I'm just <laughs> rambling now. You were also in the middle of telling your open force protocol story. I feel like we stopped and then digressed and it was a fun digression, but maybe you want to steer us back to uh, what problems you're solving and what you're thinking about right now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We got on a, on a fun tangent. I like to make this, I don't know. I always feel like it's a crass statement, but the ultimate goal for me with open forest protocol is that anyone anywhere in the world has access to the following value proposition. And here's, here's where it gets crass and it's not crass at all. Actually, it's just blunt. It's plant trees get paid. And that's like an over, there's like major caveats behind that because you have to do it the right way and it has to qualify and it has to be verified. But, but at a, like a very simple statement, it, it, it's like, that's what I always imagined the utopian vision of like a functional voluntary global carbon market to be like, like, oh yeah, I can just plant a beautiful forest and you know, the, the market will, will, will provide. Right. And it, that <laughs> is so far from the way that things operate right now. There's, as Siobhan was saying, you know, you, you've got to pay tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to accredit a forest project 
if your project is less than say 3000 acres or 1200 hectares, forget about it. Like it doesn't pencil because you need it's, it's high fixed transaction costs require large transactions to be profitable. And it's the same thing with forest projects. There's so much expense involved that you just need to, to develop a very large project to, to make it profitable. And there's not a lot of land that's owned in, in really large tracts like that. And, and if, and if you require, 3,000 acres and above, you're, you're leaving out, I would say, 99% of potential projects from accessing value from the carbon market, which we know would value these potentially more, more bespoke, more homegrown um, forest practitioners that are looking to uh, restore nature and simply receive value for something that they're doing to provide you know, for common good and, and restore the global commons. That's what I think we are trying to do. I think it, the answer may slightly vary from one OFP member to the next, but that's how I think about it. And and you know, if if we get to where I, I hope to get to, then then suddenly it becomes the new uh, the new oil and gas, if if you will. Where right when when suddenly the world realized that that fossil fuels had tons of value and that they're they were always going to be purchased if, if they could be extracted. Then you have this global economy that sprung up and, you know, would go prospecting and knocking on your door in West Texas and say, you, sir, are sitting on a gold mine. Let us help you bring these assets to market and we'll get you paid for it. Right. Like those are the types of entrepreneurs that I want to see building forests, not pulling gas out of the ground. Right. And, and, and putting their entrepreneurial firepower to finding all of the little pocket forests in and around the, the the Atlantic coast of the Amazon or wherever you are on planet Earth, and using our platform to essentially bring these assets to market. So that's maybe another take on on what it is that we're building. And in that in that analogy, which I liked, kind of the analogy of the oil and gas company going out and saying, "Hey, we're going to extract this, and we're going to get profit out of this, and we're going to add value to your life." How does that work for the analogy of planting forests? And I think about this in CDR all the time. I think about how do you communicate to people the monetary value of an act of removing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in the lithosphere or biosphere, wherever you're storing it. How do you communicate that act of value in the sense that if I'm burning fossil fuels in my home, I get an immediate value received, right? Like I'm turning on my stove or my electricity, whatever it is. And I'm, I'm immediately experiencing that value. And with CDR, the value is happening where I can't see it, right? It's like an action that's being taken that I'm paying for that I don't see. And as you say, you know, sometimes it's poorly documented. So we're not even positive it happened, but let's pretend we have the perfect robust system. We've documented, we know what happened. Still, how do you communicate that value? You're like, okay, this is going to help you because, I mean, in my case, like, well, we need to solve climate change, right? Like that's the talking point is like, well, it's too hot in California right now. I don't know how you're doing Ross up, up North, but you know, all, all of my friends in, in LA are, are just scalding, you know? So there's that sense of immediacy as, as climate crises increase and extreme weather increases, but still there's not the same relationship to saying I'm turning on my power now as opposed to like, I'm paying to remove carbon. It's like, how, where's the selling point do you think for, for customers? Hmm. I want to hear, I want to hear Ross's take on this and then I'm happy to respond uh, as well. What a, what a BS response. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that's a 
pretty huge problem. We we got a piece of advice early on in Nori that no one wants to buy barcode, which is a really important datum for us to think about because so much of Nori is trying to build a commodity market that's more like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, more than Indiegogo or eBay or Airbnb, where you're individually choosing. We want people to care about years of carbon stored, not choose what's the warmest, feeliest thing I can buy. Um, that's going to like that's a nice to have, but not the main thing that we're trying to maximize for. So that's one of the reasons why I think creative has long been such a big part of Nori is that um, given that this is an abstract barcode kind of thing that one might be buying, how do you compensate with storytelling or other means to substitute for that? So people do the thing that we think matters most, but also don't deny them the warm feelings that they often are motivated by, I would say. Yeah. And I, I, I think... I'm trying to probably walk the same razor's edge. Uh, I'm glad to hear you kind of talk about that. It's sort of a tension between an efficient commodity style market and something that tells a story at the same time, right? How do you digitize that? How do you program that into a fungible or non-fungible asset and, and, and have that data backing the credit so that you can mix this credit up with you know 10 million of its brothers and sisters. And yet the purchaser who pulls that credit out of the pile and goes home with it can can look at it and say, oh, this came from this project with these you know lovely people who planted these trees and and there's these wonderful SDG goals that were also met and that is a challenge and that is how we're looking at things and and want to sort of tread that fine line between a I mean it probably gets a little technical like if it is fungible or non fungible essentially if it is a completely unique digital asset that is unlike any others or if it's a commodity right if it's just like all the other ones that we create. And I think that there's a, a technical pathway to, to do both that does go back to like, what, what are you trying to deliver? It kind of depends on who's buying it. You know, I think corporates are trying to buy like PR to some extent and, and yeah. maybe like more react, more and more reactive PR, which we're seeing now over 40% of the S&P 500 has made net zero goals. I mean, goals are different than action, but it's a step in the right direction. And why are they doing that? Part of it is probably to appease shareholders or, or appease customers. Um, so it's a bit of and a talent too. I think people. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that, there's, there's that reason why they buy. It. And then ultimately I like to think of, of a, of a carbon credit essentially is a, it's a currency, right? It's just, it's just a, a thing that has value and can be exchanged. And, and because of that, it's not always so much about the end user like, Oh, okay. We're going to make this that someone can buy it and then retire it. I do think there is value kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation with the marketplaces and some of these marketplaces that without naming names, I I think are looking to create sort of derivative and sort of secondary products out of these credits to appease sort of niche investors who, who want to invest in this space and essentially play the space uh, as an investment opportunity. Yeah. I used to cringe at this, like, Oh no, that's not what you do with these because I don't know. It just didn't feel right to me, but I've come around on that. And I, and I do think ultimately you think about what happens if you can just create something from a carbon credit that people want to throw money at the net result, if all goes well, is that you get more investment flowing down to projects to begin with. 
And you create a virtuous cycle of more capital flowing into developing more carbon removal projects. And and if that is the end result, then I'm all for it. Create whatever kind of financial wizardry you want to bring to the to the game. Bring it. If, Wait, if is we, this assuming the credit doesn't get retired or it does? Is this the tradable? This credit is in a sort of a non-retirement situation. So I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are like, nope, credit should be retired. That's all that should happen. And I I used to be in that camp, but I think I've switched to to saying, no, if we want to create new products out of that, new financial type products, as we've done with 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 mortgages and other securities and, and things like that, great. With the caveat that if the net result is that more capital flows ultimately back to to projects because now we've seen that there's a market for this stuff and there's an appetite and you know we need we need we need more projects to be developed so we can put more of these credits on the market so that more people can play in this this silly you're, you're gonna have to convince me Jeremy I think I'm still in the camp of let's just retire the damn credits already <laughs> but I know that there's lots of people that talk about using carbon credits as a financial tool as something interchangeable I don't fully get that maybe it's because I'm not part of like the whole DeFi refi movement yet. I, I'm not integrated. I'm not exposed enough, perhaps. But if we don't retire the credit and the credit keeps getting traded, isn't there the risk then that there isn't a new carbon credit then being purchased? Like, isn't that the whole problem that if we don't retire them, then another one won't be purchased? And so another ton of CO2 won't be removed? Am I oversimplifying this in my mind? That's basically Nori's position. That's why we have a Nori token and then an NRT that are separated. So one thing is retired immediately and the other is the tradable asset. But yeah, feel free, Jeremy. Siobhan, you're doing my job for me. Thank you. Yeah, listen, uh, again, I, I think I've, I was in your guys' camp and and I've, I've come around because the way I think about it is you take a bunch of these credits and you spin something up. Ultimately, if they're in certain vehicles that are not being retired, like the knee jerk is to say that that's bad. But if those vehicles are sort of creating value flow from financial markets into creating more projects, I do feel like that could have a net positive effect. Ultimately, that that's the same goal as, you know, let's just retire them. We're, we're just trying to get more money into the system to get more projects to scale CDR to to the you know 10 gigatons per year by the end of the decade that we we know we need. To be fair, recently I had some friend ask me, like I was like, oh, I was like, oh, this is how it works. And like the credit gets retired. And they're like, says who? <laughs> and I was like, really good point, dude. Like says who? Yeah. Like we're dealing with these intangible credits. And I guess this is maybe where blockchain comes in more or less. That's where blockchain comes in because because ostensibly and I, I know at least the way that we're designing it at Open Force Protocol there's essentially a retirement button, right? Like you have a credit in a wallet, a digital wallet, you hit the retire button, right? And it's burned. Like it's still there. It's, you can see that that was done, but the credit is stuck there forever, right? And no longer moves. And so that's like the says who it's like, well, let me give you a transaction address. You can see that this happened. You can see how many of these were retired. And that kind of puts that question to rest. Ah, I'm learning something new. I didn't know you could like burn them on the, the chain so that they couldn't be transacted again, that they, they were visible, but frozen. I think off takers will like that feature, right? It, it puts that one to rest to say, all right, yeah, okay. Well, it says me because look at this thing. I can tell you exactly when, when this happened and you know how many of these were retired. I'm really interested in your point about derivatives and to what degree that's on net good for carbon credits or carbon removals and what happens when there's hundreds of millions of dollars moving around in derivatives or weird synthetic assets that are not merely representations of 
a ton of carbon dioxide or a certain ton years of carbon dioxide being stored. Is that good? I mean, that kind of financial wizardry adds a lot of complexity to the system, but it also brings a lot of resources to bear. But if it's not done right, it's not like more money is necessarily flowing to projects being developed, which is our concern and why we originally split those out. But you seem to think that it would on net be good to have a financial wizardry, one might say a derivative layer, if we want to talk crypto about it, on top of the rest of the market. Why do you, why do you think that? Why don't you unpack it a little bit for us? Partially because I like stirring the pot and being contrarian. It's good. It's good. I want to I want to hear the answer. You and to Ross, it. you and Ross both contrarians and, to the core. And and <laughs> yeah, like I said, I've I've sort of flip flopped on this, but that that's the camp that I'm in today. I guess no one knows how these things play out long term. I think you could you could imagine a future where it's like all of these unretired credits are spinning around in this derivatives market, and and suddenly they get flooded and and now purchased, and now no one's actually buying new credits to retire like that scenario. And I think, I don't know, could that be the case? Could it not? I don't know. Or the way I am thinking about it is you're creating an appetite from people who wouldn't otherwise want to buy and retire a credit. They want to buy something of value and basically create more value off of it being financial sort of wall street wizards like this this stuff is you know i, I can't tell you how it gets done it's over it's over my head and, and my skill set but the way that i imagine it happening the net result being right you have investors that don't want to mess with with carbon credits but they see that you know they can throw some money into this machine and and a little bit more comes out and the the result being that the market now needs to create more of these because everyone wants to play in this game so I think we we all want the same thing. I think we're sort of we're we're telling different futures about what happens, right? That we all want more money to come into the system to develop more projects. What happens with these unretired credits that I think is something we can only try to predict. Did you ever read Confessions of a Stock Operator? Do you know that book? No. And what it's a like a trader's memoir from like a hundred and something years ago. Um, I think I read it when I was trying to learn more about how like equities and commodities markets work. But there used to be a thing called bucket shops back in the day where you would basically just bet on whether the price of something would go up or down, but you wouldn't actually own the underlying asset or a claim to it. So it's a derivative. Yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> one more, one more product. Was that actually adding anything to the system in a meaningful way? Like, did it lead to more of well, the, what were the assets that were underlying this betting game? I think, um, I think it was just like early stocks. And like this was in stocks. So then you had, you, then you may have had lots of, you know, entrepreneurs spinning up penny stock companies to simply feed into the system. Right. And that's the analog to, you're going to have lots of project developers simply going out and like, we need to, we need to plant a bunch of forests to feed into the system. I mean, their underlying motive is is greed, not regen. But does it matter in the end? Uh, I don't know. I guess, but like the person, the person who was running the bucket shop would cover the other end of the bet, and I'm sure they would pool with others. But I'm sure I think that money just went between the betters and the house. 
And I'm not sure if there was a feedback loop that even included the underlying equities or commodities. Like, I'm not sure if that would have interacted at all. I recognize that someone listening might be like, that's not how derivatives work now. And they actually do interact in a more meaningful yeah. way. Yeah. If but you're listening now, please reach out and tell me how derivatives actually work. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get painted as the Jordan Belfort of, of refi now. So we should, <laughs> we should probably switch topics. <laughs> no, I think okay, I have no concept of derivatives. So you, both of you are in advance of me. I did. I got the Series Three uh, licensure years ago for like mostly as a way to train myself to think more about how commodities and derivatives actually trade for so I could be better at my job at Nori. But a lot of that stuff is like when you describe it as wizardry, I entirely buy that. It's a it's almost a different kind of mind that thinks in this way, and I don't think it's yeah. mine. Um, <laughs> But uh, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit more about like the whole supply demand stuff because I feel like that's a, a, a hot topic. And in creating, you know, with whether it's open force protocol or Nori, you know, the idea is to provide a supply to authenticate that supply. And we talk a lot about how demand right now outstrips supply. But honestly, like if you look at like gigaton scale, we are still demand constrained in the sense that we still don't have like if you had twenty gigatons to offload. How easy would that be to offload? Not very, right? Um, I don't think there's a lot of people asking for like 20 gigatons worth of carbon, but we need to get there, right? <laughs> like, Jeremy, how do you see like the, so like, how do you factor open force protocol into like the future of like the supply demand curve that was, it will be in maybe 10 years or 20 years, like, or are you kind of dialed into the moment right now and like getting the customers you need now? Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure someone's done a study of right all of the net zero pledges and if and when all of those come to fruition at 2030 or whether that's 2040 or 50, like what does demand look like at that point? And probably Trove or, or McKinsey or Silvera has, has done a study like that. But uh, you know, oh, the, the macro picture is we are looking at the future and we don't see a way to supply the market given the current process. And that is a bullish case for, for open force protocol that aims to be a new supplier to the market, right? That, that is sort of issuing its own, its own potential credits at a future date. And, you know, I, I think that uh, as time moves on and, and hopefully these, you know, these trends pan out and that we will be able to fill gaps that, that the current system simply isn't, isn't filling today and won't into the future. Should we talk about tree humor? I feel like we haven't hit on any of our memes yet, but we do always try to make guests evaluate some of our memes or especially ones that are in their wheelhouse. So, you know, we asked like Jason Hoffman to rate our like DAC memes. <laughs> and I feel like when it comes to humor and CDR, we kind of do one of two things with, with reforestation. Um, first of all, I love reforestation. And I genuinely think as, a, as an individual I'm agnostic as a thing. As thanks a ton. We certainly try to be agnostic. Like I really do believe we need an all of the above approach. I feel like trees are a really easy wildfire joke. So I go for that a lot. Mm -hmm. I also feel like there's the just plant trees kind of cohort. And that's an easy joke to do too, because it's like, well, not enough land and et cetera, et cetera. But then I also feel like trees, I they, they become like the the hero of the joke a lot of times when it's like, cost comparing or popularity comparing or understanding, you know, like I use trees as the analogy to communicate all the other, all the other methods to people. 
And like I use trees to communicate like vintages of CDR, right? Because sometimes there's a CDR vintage that you're paying for now that won't, you know, then it gets in the queue and that credit actually won't be removed. That ton won't be removed from the atmosphere for a year maybe or something. And so I tell people and explain that by saying, well, it's like planting a tree. Like you plant the tree on day one. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean the ton is removed on day one, you know, like, and so I feel like I always come back to trees as like this foundational explainer for carbon removal. And maybe that's because they're by far the most widely known and accepted method, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, you know, now I feel like there's like all this kind of controversy within academia about durability and, you know, where should we be investing the most resources? And I'm like, I don't know, are we really, are we really fighting over these scraps? Let's just invest in everything, guys. I don't know. What do you think of like the, do you think trees are an easy story to tell? Do you think trees are good fodder for climate humor? (laughs) I think they're both. I think there's very few people who are opposed to trees, right? They're, they're pretty easy thing to at least be agnostic about, if not to say, I, I love trees. Like what, there's nothing wrong with trees. Uh, and that, and that's kind of like, that's the case study for photosynthesis that we all learn back in, you know, sixth grade biology or whatever is like, yeah, these trees, uh, pull carbon out of the air and that's what they're made of. And like, Oh, okay. So like hearkening back to that, like original lesson on nature-based drawdown. Yeah. Is, is sort of, that's, that's the tree example that gets drilled in, into our heads or at least got, got drilled into mine. And I actually moved away from nature-based solutions kind of just thought, okay, this isn't, this isn't it. You can tell, I mean, obviously <laughs> I flip flop on a lot of things <laughs> because I'm open to new ideas and and I, I take in a lot of ideas and, and ultimately I did come back to trees for a number of reasons. And I, I think one of them is, is sort of analogous to like this whole, well, what if climate change is a hoax? Well, okay, fine. Then we at least will have clean, clean water and our clean air. Right. And, and, uh, you have all these co-benefits, right? So even if the trees are are a terrible climate solution, which they're not, you still have these massive co-benefits. And those, those markets are, you know, we talked about biodiversity briefly at the beginning, like those, those types of markets are, I think maybe going to eclipse carbon at at, at some point in the the coming decades. But but yeah, it's a meme for sure. I mean, uh, particularly in the, in the CDR nerd world, uh, I've been, I kind of moved away from using the term CDR when it, when it comes to reforestation, because maybe it's more mm. sequestration, because maybe there has to be a certain length of durability to to qualify for the term removal. Maybe it's a sequestration, right? And I, I get it, right? And we've got to suss out our terminology as a as as an industry, but we also have to do that without getting too tribal and, and infighting. But with tribalism and infighting come really fun memes. So you know, there's a trade off there. <laughs> That's, that's our fodder there now, but I'm with you. I feel like, you know, the infighting isn't super helpful and, you know, photosynthesis at the end of the day, whether it's in planting trees and we call that the complete cycle, the complete method of carbon removal and storage, or if it's in one of the plethora of other solutions that require photosynthesis. Like I recently made a TikTok because I wanted to explain photosynthesis, but then I realized like, oh, wow, but like biochar and bio oil and kelp, I'm like, wait, it's all relying on photosynthesis. There's so many solutions that actually the mechanism for removing the molecule is via photosynthesis. And then it becomes the storage mechanism is kind of where the humans get more involved. Anyways, Ross, do you want to pull up some of our forest memes and maybe we can have Jeremy rate them in the last (laughs) few minutes here? I mean, yeah, I just have like one, I pulled it from a tree memes page. I saw someone share it 
and we were going to recaption it for our own purposes. But yeah, here's a here's a tree one. I don't even know that I fully understood it, but hey, can you see this? Oh, you can help us. We've been working on this one. We've been workshopping this. <laughs> so we want to convert this into a pure CDR meme using this format. It's a picture of uh, Luke Wilson doing the um, like tight-lipped, <laughs> like kind of grimace face that he's known for. And it says, Luke Wilson's always looks like you just told him and insert your own caption. But this one is his tree wasn't struck by lightning. It just fell apart because of co-dominant stems with included bark. This is way to uh, the deep foresters. Yeah. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what this deep, means. Deep but. forests. It took me a really long time to think it through and then and then I lapsed. So I, I like it. We might need to simplify the language a little bit, but oh yeah, I just pulled this. I'm gonna I'm ditching that entire caption. We thought of some options being like Luke Wilson always looks like you just told him we can figure out the MRV later. Just told him about go. the energy requirements of direct air capture. It's just sitting there. So I don't know. We have to figure it out. What would be what if you were to put a tree one in here? Let's live meme this. Would we say like Luke Wilson looks like you just told him? The DBH is not sufficient to measure a tree. Luke Wilson always looks like you just told him that forest project operators should collect and report their own data. Okay. Okay. A little operational joke. I like it. Is DBH like just measuring, like throwing measuring tape around the base of it or something? This is the face I get when I when I explain our, our OFP process before I get to the second part of it where I'm like, well, yeah, no. We're, we're, we're letting the, the projects collect their own data. And then I get this face. Um, <laughs> then I get to the part where it's, where it's validated, you know, dozens to hundreds of times in a public blockchain and, you know, the improvement that that provides over the legacy process. But again, that's, I've seen this look before. I'll, I will say that. It's a good one. We got to keep working that workshop in that one, but uh, it seems like a pretty good place to, to conclude for today. Jeremy, as we wrap up, are there resources you want to direct people towards? I'll put links to the sh- in the show notes to whatever you'd like people to see. I would say openforestprotocol.org would be the place to go to get some information. There's some opportunities there to get involved in the community. If you're interested, we're building a validator network, which uh, we didn't talk about much, but essentially that is forest expert organizations who lend credibility to the verification of the data. So essentially, we're, we're, we're taking the best thing from Web2, which I would say is, is a network, right? The ability to build networks. And we're creating a, a network of verification bodies that coordinate to review all of that self-reported data from, from the forest. The reason I mention this is, you know, if you feel like you are one of those forest expert organizations, we'd love to hear from you and, and potentially add you to the network. And uh, you can help us build the future of, of DMRV, distributed MRV. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's the first time I've heard that initialism, but certainly won't be the last. <laughs> um, well, thanks for being here, Jeremy. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Good to wrap up. Yeah, you. it was nice, nice talking with you. Was, I'm glad I got to get a little, a little education in Web three and whatnot, and and carbon finance, of which I am sorely lacking. At some point, I think Siobhan was like, "All right, enough derivative stuff. I am taking control of this conversation. It's doing it far away from this. <laughs> Sorry, Siobhan. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what we do here, please give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, send it to a friend. And thanks so much for hanging out with us. We always appreciate it. Thanks. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.